Hello, Financially Fit Fam. It's Kyle coming to you from the Healthy Money Podcast. Today on the episode, we have a very exciting conversation that took place between Pat and the governor of Arizona, Governor Doug Ducey, and that happened on December 17th. That was this Tuesday. Uh, In the conversation, we talk about the governor's personal background, his financial success that he had with growing Cold Stone Creamery into the business that it is today, how he was able to take Arizona from a billion dollar deficit to a billion dollar surplus and over a billion dollars in the rainy day fund. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and enjoy. When we were together last time, we were talking about the importance of financial education. Mm-hmm. And I, I know it's something that's really near and dear to your heart. And I'd like to touch on that for a second, but uh, a little bit more fascinated with talking about your background, the successes that you've had. Um, you know, what was the thought process behind Cold Stone? Mm-hmm. Um, so could you share a little bit of the story? I know you're not from here originally, too, which is kind of interesting. So talk a little bit about your background, if you wouldn't mind. Well, I, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. My, my dad was a cop. I, I came out here to, to go to school. I actually studied finance at Arizona State University. And my company was Cold Stone Creamery. It was founded right here. We built it to 1,440 ice cream stores operating in all 50 states. I sold Cold Stone in 2007. I think it operates in 31 countries around the world today. So something I'm very proud of. Our vision was to be the ultimate ice cream experience. We really wanted to differentiate with that product. I think you had Dairy Queen, Baskin Robbins, TCBY, uh, but there was nobody really in the super premium category. Uh, Haagen-Dazs and Ben and Jerry's certainly educated America's palate to what was superior ice cream, but they they left the retail model and went to the grocery stores, and it allowed us to go to corners all over the U.S. and for a buck fifty more, we could have a super premium experience, and you could customize and, and personalize it. So the finance part of that equation is that you want to make sure that the model can work for for the franchisee, that you can sell more ice cream than what your expenses are, and we had success all over the nation. What were some of the words of wisdom that you gave franchisee owners? Well, uh, a franchisee owner did have to be a CEO. I mean, they were the chief executive of their Cold Stone Creamery. I remember we had a a gal in Alaska, Brenda Bagalke, and uh, I used to wear a Cold Stone shirt wherever I want, and I was flying up to Alaska to visit Brenda, and uh, the person on the plane said, "Uh, are you with Cold Stone? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, I know the founder of Cold Stone. (laughs) And I said, well, well, tell me about him. And he goes, it's not a him, it's a her. It's Brenda Bagalke. And everyone in Alaska thought that Brenda founded Cold Stone. And I told that story at the franchise meeting. And I said, you're all founders of your store. And that's how you ought to operate in your local community. Ice cream is really a product that opens doors. Right. You can go to every school, every small business, and talk about what you're doing. You can deliver some product. You can put together what we called fun raisers inside the store to benefit local charities and Brenda showed us a lot and we shared those best practices with other franchisees and that was part of what helped make the highs higher because it's tough to sometimes sell ice cream in Alaska in the winter months but Brenda made sure that she excelled in 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 the summer months and the the trend lines are pretty much the same whether you're in Alaska or Arizona in terms of what ice cream sales are going to look like in the in the spring and summer compared to the winter. Now, I know you had a lot of employees. Did you 
do a lot in the way of financial education or try to you know build some things to help the employees you know with their financial lives we had a, a two-week training class at what we called ice cream university at our headquarters it's still there at via de ventura and and the freeway if you drive up, up and back of the headquarters it still has has the label ice cream university even though i think there's 14 other additional brands under uh, the roof so the franchisee who was the owner someone who was in business for themselves but not by themselves would have excellent business and financial training. So many of our employees were high school students. I mean, we had the, we called it the best first job. We had a lot of 16 and 17 year olds working inside those Cold Stone Creameries. I think we were a major employer of, of teenagers. Uh, we had great kids who were great ice cream people and uh, had a great culture inside the store. Some of them went on to become managers. We would train them on the fa financial side of the business, but it was more the owner that received the financial and business acumen. So to jump to politics, how does that happen? Well, I sold Cold Stone in 2007. I'd never been to Washington, D.C. I was in an organization called Young Presidents Organization, YPO, sure. YPO. and they had an educational trip uh, inside Washington. I, I went out and did this educational trip. I came back kind of fascinated about how much uh, public policy was affected by others. I knew that Cold Stone uh, had some states where it was really easy to do business, Arizona being one of them, and some where it was brutally difficult, California, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey uh, among them. And I did some due diligence on how I, I could get involved. I went and visited with Senator John Kyle. I'd never met him, gave me a lot of time, asked me uh, if I had an executive personality or a legislative personality. I knew the answer immediately. I said executive. He said, don't even consider running for Congress. You should run for governor. A um, uh, uh, year later, uh, Dean Martin, who was the sitting state treasurer, decided to challenge the sitting governor. It opened up that treasurer's office again, financial uh, uh -huh. background, uh, rather naively threw my hat in the ring, competitive <laughs> primary in general, but I learned a lot during that race. I also learned a lot about state government and our state budget. We had the first open seat for governor in 12 years. Uh, four years later, uh, ran for that office, and here I am. Now, I think it's amazing what you've done. Uh, you took over when we had a huge deficit. You've turned it into a terrific surplus. What do you owe that to? What are some of the things that you're most proud of? Well, it's a real financial secret. Okay. What we did is uh, we spent less than we brought in. <laughs> and that really is the crux of right, it. I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a, you can focus on the revenue side of the agenda, you can focus on the spending side of the agenda. Uh, sometimes it's tough to tighten the belt and make those difficult decisions. But I had led through several downturns in my past life in the private sector. And each time when we dug out of that, I looked back and thought, I wish I would have acted faster and dug deeper. I mean, that's the job of the chief executive, right? And I thought, I'm not gonna waste that wisdom and experience on the biggest responsibility I've ever had. So in that first year, I really had to work with the legislature because uh, you, it, we do have three separate and co-equal branches and I had to get those votes. And I said to the guys that I was asking to vote yes on my budget, which was a 
very politically unpopular budget. I said, uh, you know how whatever you say gets back to me, it's reported in the paper in the yellow sheet. I said, well, can I tell you what I want you to say about this budget? And they'd say, what? I actually had a guy crying in my office saying, couldn't vote for this budget, it was too difficult. I said, blame me, okay? I will own this budget. I ran on balancing the budget, and I'm gonna tell you, the economy's gonna turn around, and we're gonna have different and better decisions next year or it won't turn around and we'll be happy that we took our medicine sooner. Sure enough, the economy did turn around. We were in a position where we were able to heal the budget. We were able to have some strategic investments, but we never went on a spending spree. Even with a state, you know, came into office with a billion dollar deficit and a budget that was not balanced. Today we have a billion dollar surplus in the general fund, a billion dollar balance in the rainy day fund. Moody's has upgraded the state twice in the last five years, only state to have that kind of credit uh, rating increase. Uh, we've done it all without raising taxes, but we've still kept spending under control. And this is while putting $4.7 billion additional dollars into K-12 education, giving our police officers and correctional officers a raise, giving our teachers a 20% pay increase. But these have been thoughtful, strategic decisions. But step one was getting our financial house in order. I think that's so important. Are you... Are you concerned looking at some of the the bigger picture as far as what's happening with credit card debt, what's happening with car loans, you know, getting extended almost to to kind of fit the payment that you can afford? It didn't matter if it's seven or eight years or six years or given the fact that student debt is really kind of spiraling out of control per se. Are you concerned as some of the bigger economics as far as what's happening with uh, people's finances in general and the fact that I still think a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. Do you? Do you I, well, I, I sure am concerned. I mean, haven't we seen this this movie before? Yes. I mean, wasn't this the, the story of 2004 and 2005 and irrational exuberance? Everybody just thought their home value was going to climb to the moon and there would be an increase in pay every year. And that's why I think that idea of getting your own spending under control, having a plan, setting some goals, and uh, maybe delaying gratification on the, the dream car that you want right. or the, the home that you want to live in and, and making sure that you're making those proper investments uh, and that you're thinking long term and that you're saving for a rainy day. The downturn will come. It's inevitable. It's always unexpected. And I hope that that's the lesson that people learned from that 2008-2009 time frame. In state government, we really had the rug pulled out from underneath us. That's why I was so focused on getting our rainy day fund to a billion dollars and I want to put more money into it this next year. It doesn't mean we don't need additional dollars in K-12 education and public health and public safety. We're going to put money in those things as well, but I know a downturn is going to come. I hope it doesn't happen on my watch, but I think you have to, you know, you can hope for the best, but you do need to plan for, for the worst. Right. That's part of being a good chief executive and that's part of being a, a, a good steward of, of a household or a business. Let's flip. I know that when we talked last time, financial education was uh, very passionate, something that you truly believed in, and, and we had a great conversation, and I'm really impressed with the high school. 
legislation bill on financial on financial literacy. You want to talk a little bit more about that? What was the driving impetus behind that? Sure. Well, there's a there's a lady in town, Sharon Lecter. She was the co-author on Rich Dad Poor Dad. She had a real passion for this. She really uh, sold me on this idea as I was treasurer. Um, as governor, you have a little bit more responsibility and authority to sign bills and get things done. I give uh, both Sharon Lecter and Kimberly Yee a lot of credit for getting this over the finish line. And what we want to make sure is that this isn't just an elective course, that kids should come out of high school with some real skills of value that they can take into the real world, whether they go on to college, university, community college, career and technical education. And financial responsibility, financial literacy is, is part of that. You don't want somebody being mailed a credit card at age 18 yeah. and just thinking, hey, I can go out on this and I only have to pay a small percentage right. of a payment. We all know how, how that story ends and the trouble that somebody can get into young by taking on too much debt. And I think financial literacy is a good first step. I think we have a lot more to do around that and a lot more around the, the culture of, of saving and investing. I saw a presentation uh, by the administration, uh, 51 percent of Americans participate directly or indirectly in the stock market right. via their pension, their 401k, their Roth IRA, or their actual investors. And there's so many great things out there. I mean, they can work with a financial professional mm -hmm. like yourself, but my own kids introduced me to this app called Acorns. Okay. I don't know if you're yeah, aware sure, of it. Sure. Boy, it's sure. so neat for a, a young person to get involved in that. And, and through that, through something that's really simple and easy, they can learn about dollar cost averaging, not trying to time the market. Right. And actually, what I say, paying yourself first. It doesn't matter if you make a million dollars a year. If you spend a million dollars a year, you didn't make anything. It's really what, what you save and, and what you invest and what you, you plan for that, that time way off in the future. Call it retirement. Call it your, your, uh, your, your entrepreneurial dream of something that you want to plan and invest and capitalize. Well, that all requires cash, uh, and that's all the money that you need to save. We often teach people that you're your most important bill. Pay yourself first because we've been taught, oh, let's pay all of our bills and all these other things. And then what's left over, we'll go ahead and save, but there's never anything left over. So unless you change that paradigm, as you said, pay yourself first, there's, there's nothing going to be there. There's so many great things out there, and everyone would like to find a nicer apartment, a nicer home, a nicer car to drive. But when you do have that mentality of paying yourself first, whether it's $100 a month, and you put that away and then go to live off the rest, uh, that, that starts to add up. And then hopefully your income increases. And I'm happy to see Arizona's in the, in the top three states in the nation for people improving on their personal income that gives them the opportunity to, to save more and then I think once they see that account they can work with professionals there's terrific stuff online I was proud of my middle son he walked right into Charles Schwab and opened up his <laughs> own account and then he liked the uh, application right. and tools at TD Ameritrade better he went over to TD Ameritrade and said I'd like to take <laughs> my account over here but I'm gonna have to pay a $50 penalty at Schwab and they said we'll waive the the fee and, and credit you the $50. And I mean, I think that's, I, I've tried to, to teach him that. And sometimes you think they're listening. Sometimes you know they're, right. they're not. But th th those are the seeds that you want to plant. And boy, when you start early, what a difference it can make in a 
career. I know my wife and I have our kids doing stock investment programs. You know, a lot of people can buy one share of stock and then continue to add, you know, $25 or birthday money, you know, different things like that. And uh, you're right. It's a process of education. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that you've taken that first step with the high school kids, my, my daughter's involved with the program at Arcadia, and she said it's super fun. And they're all now trying to take their little projects and making more money with it. And she said it's terrific. You know, and it is incredible it. what's happening in the market right now. I mean, it's it has been a boom. Um, we know that there's always corrections. Sure. But I I try to at least encourage my, my own kids of, of don't time the market. Just pay yourself first. Yeah. Try to find an account that you don't look at or you don't watch day to day and, and, and let that grow. And of course, you got to go live your life as well. Get your education. Pursue your career. So I'd like to end on two questions. First of all, what do you kind of think, you know, your opinion with what's going on and the impeachment nonsense and some of that stuff? Do you have an opinion about that? Well, the the great news is as governor, I have a day job and it pretty much (laughs) consumes my time. I am concerned about that everyone is focused on Washington, D.C., and everyone's talking about the presidential race. I do think there are so many things that affect an individual's life outside of what happens in these larger national races, and of course they are important, but the people are going to get to decide on who the president is in in November. I don't think we want Nancy Pelosi or a, a small group of elected leaders back in Washington, D.C. to to uh, reverse a, a national decision that was made by 63 million people. So I'd rather that we focus on the election and, and let the candidates make their case. Uh, but Congress is going to do what they're going to do. Of course, I believe in hold dear the Constitution in three separate and co-equal branches. In addition, the fact that, you know, states have a role in our government outside of what's happening in Washington, D.C. This current administration, uh, the Trump-Pence administration, has been very beneficial to to our state. I had a, a relationship with Mike Pence before I was governor. We worked hard to build a relationship with the Obama administration as well. They, uh, with President Obama, he believed more in centralized control in Washington, D.C. Uh, Mike Pence was a governor. I think he sees more of a dynamic competition between the states. He sees the states as the laboratories of democracy, and that allows us to innovate here at the state level. And then, you know, other governors will take our good ideas, and whether Republican or Democrat, I sit with other governors and try to apply their good ideas at the state level. All governors are chief executives and decision makers who set the agenda for their state. But I think that's more of a prize private sector mentality of that that healthy competition actually allows us to get out of the one-size-fits-all, top-down, centralized decision-making that we see coming out of Washington, D.C. for far too long and, and more often than not, not working. Just look at education, look at health care. This is something where the commanding heights or in our federal government, and they're the two sectors in our economy that haven't seen the innovation that we've seen everywhere else. And uh, I'm hopeful that we can do that at the state level. That's what I love most about my job. I know you have a lot more aspirations before your term's over, but any further aspirations beyond that? What happens after? Well, you know, Pat, I'm in the, I'm in the first year of a four-year term. I'm basically, you know, reliving my freshman year again. And I know, one, how quickly 
these four years go by, sure. but I also know how much you can accomplish. I'm very proud of what we've been able to do in these first five years. You know, we talked about where we came from, yeah. deficit Terrific. to where we are in terms of surplus. Our economy's booming right now, 300,000 new jobs. But my expectation is that we should be able to do more in these next three years than we did in the first five years. We don't have a hole to dig out of. We've got momentum, and I want to pour the gas on. That's great. That's great. Well, I want to respect your time because I know you're busy. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? I just want to wish everyone a happy holiday season, a Merry Christmas. It's going to be a great new year. Let's make 2020 the best year ever in Arizona. Well, you've done a lot to make that happen. So thank you for your thank time. Thank you, Pat. I really appreciate, appreciate it. it. You got it.